morning, everybody. I say everybody, but I'm wondering where everybody is this morning. <laughs> we have our budget vote after. Maybe that scared everybody off. They didn't want to be here for the very brief business meeting. I don't know. But I'm glad to see you here. Glad your faces are here. Glad these faces are here. Our tech crew back there. And we're going to lift our voices nonetheless. Open God's Word. Hope you're joining us online. If you can't be here this morning, the worship and the celebration of God. So, we invite you to stand with us if you'd like. The words will be here on the screen behind us, and uh, let's just lift our voices for you to get here. Let's bow and open in chapter number 3 on our music. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here to celebrate you, to worship you, to praise you, to greet one another with holy thanks.
Christ. Man, we have kids' church, kids' world this morning. I'd love for you to go with me to Luke chapter 1 today. In the second Sunday of Advent, which by the way is not the second Sunday of the month, which means um, Karen asked me yesterday, who's preaching tomorrow? I said, Jason. And then realized when we got here this morning, it's not Jason today, because he's next week, and he's in church Sunday the month. So, this will be fun, but there's an old adage in, uh, taken from the Word, be ready in season and out of season. I always think something in the back pocket, but here's also the fun thing about when you're in an environment where you're just preaching through, preaching from the Word, the Word is all there. It's already there. And so the truth this morning will just come straight from there as well. But I want to direct our attention to that preparation for the Messiah. That's what Advent is, is all about, is, is laying the foundation, the groundwork, the anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah. And like we talked about last week, the, the hope of that, the glory of that, uh, and I just had to actually write about this in a finals in one of our classes that we're taking in the Old Testament had to touch on this, the importance of us embracing the, the idea, the fact, the promise that Jesus gave us that when he had been resurrected and he ascended back into heaven, that he would send to us a helper who would be with us. The presence of God literally within everyone who believes in and follows that no generation before us enjoyed that. That, that it is only for those after Christ has come and fulfilled the promise of being the ultimate high priest, the ultimate lamb of sacrifice. And so this anticipation that we're talking about, that, that we see in the scripture and that certainly the people of Israel uh, wrote about, sang about, uh, dreamed about, for generations and generations and generations, that there would come a time that God's presence would be persistently with his people. Because picture this, in, in, in the time of Jesus, remember, he would go to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus participated in the feasts of, of the Jews, the things that were handed down in the books of, of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the things that were given to the, to the nation of Israel that were going to set them apart from everyone else. Jesus observed all those things as a Jewish rabbi, as a Jewish man. And so he went to the temple, and still in that day, in the temple was at least a representation of what was in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, when the Jews are coming out of Egypt, out of their captivity. There comes a point when they uh, are in the wilderness that God says, uh, I want to now move from my presence being just with Moses when he comes to the mountain. And I want my presence to be more among the people, but still not in the way that it is for us today. He says, I want you to build a tabernacle. And within that tabernacle, and he gave very specific instructions of how to build this wilderness tent that would be a movable temple. But he then said, inside of that temple, there's going to be a place where only the high priest can go, and that place will be the Holy of Holies. And within that place, I want you to take and build this, this uh, altar, this, this Ark of the Covenant, meaning the, the Savior device that's going to carry the promise of God. Why do you call it an ark? We go back to the days of Noah and that salvation that was in the ark that Noah built. There's a place, an ark is a place of God's provision and salvation. And so he said, you're going to build this representation of this box. It's, it's ornate and it has angel uh, figurines on it. It's very precise. And within that, I want you to take and put the proof of my covenant with you, which at a minimum, was going to be the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. Uh, they, we think maybe there were pieces of manna that were, that were in there that were uh, supernaturally held because manna 
uh, when it was given to the people, wouldn't last more than a day. That's a great story, by the way, that we'll have to talk about sometime. The, the symbolism of the providence and the provision of God. But he said, in this place, I'm going to be among my people. In the temple, I will allow my presence to dwell there in the Holy of Holies. But still, it's only going to be accessible by one man, really one time a year, during the Day of Atonement. And he will be there on your behalf. But still, this was a great this was a great advancement to the people of Israel saying, God is going to be near to us. Because remember when they were when Moses was going up on the mountain and being uh, transfigured, his face was being uh, illuminated by the light of God and he would come down and his face would shine like a flashlight and people were afraid. This would bring God a little closer to the people. But it still wasn't the fulfillment of the promise that there would be a Messiah. And so all those generations before us, all the generations in, in the days before the disciples, those who lived in the time of Christ, were still anticipating the promise of a Messiah who would come and return the presence of God to be directly among the people as it was in the days of the Garden of Eden. That God would walk among men and women. And that was fulfilled in the person of Christ. Now, Christ took on an earthly form. We, we see this in Scripture. It says that, that he did not think it was uh, too low of a thing, let's say, that he would take on humanity and walk among us. But in doing so, God, Jesus, that, that aspect of God, that person of God, set aside some of his godly qualities. He was not, in his physical form, he wasn't omnipresent, right? He couldn't be everywhere at all times. He's just like you and I, living in a fleshly cloak, God himself. And so there still was a further promise that was fulfilled in the Holy Spirit, because now God's Holy Spirit is present everywhere where his believers are present. And, and we must embrace that as the incredible gift that it is to us, because these people that are being addressed in the beginning here of, of the book of Luke and the things that he's referring to, these are people who, in their own lifetime and the generations of their families who have been followers after God before them, of God might come to be with them in the way that God had promised. So, uh, interestingly enough, we're only going to touch on the four first verses of Luke today, which doesn't actually go into the story at all, but it sets the stage. So go with me, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch, and, and I don't know if you have a, a title like mine does, a lot of Bibles have those. This is called the dedication to Theophilus. That's a, that's a, that's a big, that's a lot. That's his name, Theophilus. And so he's writing to him this account, and he qualifies why he's doing it right here in these first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, that seemed good to me also. And so the writer of Luke here, which we take, uh, Luke was not one of the 12 disciples, but he's a follower of Christ. because we see his eyewitness account that he gives in the rest of, the, of this book. But he acknowledges that there are many who have tried to write down a narrative of what they have seen, and that there are many eyewitnesses. And we sort of get the impression here that he is, he is not only using his own eyewitness account, but that he is also pulling from and drawing from other people that he has spoken to or friends of his. You know how, you know how it is when... When you're somewhere and you encounter something magnificent, maybe you've been to a great concert, you went to a great show, uh, something dramatic happened in front of you, you're together in a dioxone or something like that, and you have your perspective. You're all eyewitnesses to the same event, 
often you experience them slightly differently, sometimes dramatically differently, because of your own perspective. This is exactly what he's referring to. Many have written narratives and tried to encapsulate all of the things that we have witnessed. He said, and it just seems good to me, because of what I've seen, that I do the same. And so that is why he's writing this account. It seemed good to me, verse 3, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And there we see that like we have referenced in a couple of other things in the past several months, where we, we find a spot where uh, the, the writer is, is describing, discussing what they have their, their intention is and, and what they're going to write about with the content, and then they underscore it with, so that you might be assured that what you have learned is true. So that you may be assured that what you hear from others is accurate and that what you uh, have seen with your own eyes, it reinforces that. And we see that several times, especially in the New Testament, where the writers are underscoring the idea that I'm, I'm I'm writing this under the, the direction and power of the Holy Spirit. God is directing me to write this, but I'm writing it so that you can have confidence in the other things that you have learned and heard and believed. All right, so what are the foundations for what uh, Luke is going to write here? I want you to go with me to a couple of other places. We're not going to spend a long time here today. I want the, the word to do its own work. Let's see if I bookmark this here. Isaiah chapter 11. one, we find here one of the early direct prophecies of the Messiah. And this is a passage that those that, that now, Luke is a Jew, he's uh, grown up with all of the teachings of Christ, uh, he's speaking to people who have grown up with the teachings of Christ. Uh, remember that all of the disciples, these were educated men, what we say that they were fishermen. It doesn't mean that they were stupid. This means that was their vocation. But all of these men grew up in, in Jewish education as young boys, going to the temple and being instructed by the rabbis, learning the Torah on their own, being able to read the Torah on their own and instruct people. Uh, you see the same practice today in Jewish synagogue practice. The young men are trained from the time that they're little so that they understand the words and they understand the teachings of God, they understand the prophecies, and, and this would be no different. So when he says that I want you to, to be assured of all of the things that you have been taught, he is absolutely referring back to a passage just like this, probably specifically to a passage that we find here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, because this would have been one that would have been a very common uh, refrain of here's how you'll know the Messiah. Now, we know that that gets messed up because the Jewish people as a whole reject Jesus as their Messiah. And primarily that happens because they have developed an idea that the Messiah was going to come and be a political savior, that he was going to solve all of their cultural problems of being under the boot and under the heel of the Romans, of not being able to be free and governing in their own land, and this now had been happening for uh, centuries. They had been under someone else's rule instead of being free and self-determined people. And they thought that's what the Messiah would eventually do. He would swoop in like a warrior, like a soldier, and, and bat away the authorities that were keeping them under their control. And when that didn't happen, because that was the common understanding of the Messiah, they were very disillusioned and they rejected Jesus because he came instead with a sword to conquer evil and to conquer sin in the lives of people individually that they might come to know him. And it wasn't so much about political systems and culture, it was about that one-on-one -on -one personal relationship, devotion to the Messiah. He was going to solve that just he wasn't here to solve the problem for for societies. He was here to solve the problem for individuals, and the problem for individuals is sin. So they rejected him, even though they had heard these prophecies. So here we go. 
Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and his faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bull shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Now, there's a lot of description in there that we would look at today and go, well, that's not that bad. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm, I am not prepared for myself or to send one of my children to go stick their hand in a snake's nest. Um, that would be fun. Um, when we go out hiking this summer, we will be prepared in some way in case we encounter a bear, because it does not seem prudent that we would lie down with one another and graze on the grass next to each other. There are a lot of things contained in here that may be metaphorical, but much of this is still future to come. Now, we know that Jesus comes from the line of Jesse. We know that uh, another place in Isaiah says that he should be like a tender shoot springs up of hope and peace. And we know then that when we read this, that we see the work of Christ, we see that he's referred to this this shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse, and that he shall bear fruit, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, peace will be with him, salvation will be with him, righteousness will be with him, and he will come and he won't judge people based on on what he sees with his eyes or what he hears with his ear. This is a reference to the, the system that the people of Israel had been part of for so long, where there was literally the king or the judge would sit at the corner uh, gate in the city and people would have complaints against one another, complaints against the king or whatever, and they would come and they would make their case. He would see what they were, they were dealing with, he would hear what they were talking about, and he would make a decision. We see this also in one of the the most famous women in the Bible, Deborah, the judge, who when no men would take on the mantle of leadership, she stepped forward and God anointed her to be the judge over the people of Israel. And she served incredibly well, amazingly well, and uh, accomplished some, some awesome things for the nation of Israel under the direction of God. But it was that same system. She would be there at the judgment seat and people would bring their issues and she would make a judgment based on what she saw and what she heard. And it says here that the one who comes, this shoot who springs up, who has the Spirit of God upon them, who has the the presence of God uh, among them, one of the other things that he says is the knowledge of God. This one will not look at what is external, will not look at what he can hear, but he will look into the see those who are poor and destitute within, and he will bring to them mercy. He will bring to them salvation. And then the time will come when he will completely crush all that is wicked. And in that time, 
beasts of the field will, the lion will no longer savagely tear apart other beasts to eat, but instead will graze on grass next to the oxen. Then he says, and then ultimately, that same one, that sheep from Jesse, that one who brings salvation, that one who looks in the heart instead of on the external heart of man, he will call again to all of those who have been flung to the farthest stretches of the earth but are his, and he will call them home to his dwelling in a place where they reside eternally with the presence of God. This is the hope that the people of Israel were looking after for all of those generations. And we see now with this wonderful lens of 2020 being able to look back on all of the collective works of prophecies, and we can see that Jesus is the one who fulfills those, and we place our trust in him. And that's what Advent calls us to. Is to consider that whether we were ever aware of it before, maybe we're aware of it now, Maybe it only came to us in the moment that God offered to us salvation and we took it. But that all of us at one point in our lives either have been or are just like the people of Israel were in the days of old, looking for something, longing for something, wishing for something that would come along and fulfill the, the empty spaces in our lives that would bring to us hope, that would bring to us purpose, that would bring to us salvation that would bring to us relief and remedy from the weight of our sin and our errors and our mistakes and our disobedience before God would offer to us instead hope and peace and love and joy. All of the things that Advent points us to as we anticipate celebrating the arrival of Christ. This morning, if you're you're one of those who's, who's encountered that already and received that, I want you to rejoice in it. Be so thankful that you have encountered Christ, that he called to you, and that you said yes, because you may know the literal presence of God with you at all times. Maybe you're still seeking. Maybe you're still wondering. I'm calling you to, to listen this morning is the voice of God calling to you. Is he reaching out to you? It has nothing to do with whether you've got it all lined out right now. You don't, you don't have to have all the, 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 the boxes checked that I am a good person, so now God's going to be okay with me. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. It says here that he's after the poor. He's after the ones who are struggling. He's after the ones who are destitute of spirit. And he says, come to me, all you who labor and are weary, and I will give to you rest. Has nothing to do with whether you think you're, you're suitable for that. God says, Come to me with all of your garbage, and I will make you suitable before me because I love you. And I've come to bring you salvation. It's a gift that you have to receive. He offers it to you, but you must receive it. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge who God is. Acknowledge who you are. Last passage of scripture is in Romans. Romans chapter 15. Did I send you that one, John? So you can't help me now. You didn't stand on it. That's exactly my issue right now. I'm like, no. <laughs> I think it starts in one, but I want to remind myself of it. Thanks for letting us know. 13, 11 through 14. Chapter 15, verses 11 through 14. But I'm going to go back to... I'm going to go back to verse 8. So Romans chapter 15, verse 8, and then we'll read through 14. For I tell you that Christ 
became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Now, who are the circumcised? The Jews, right? It was one of the things, remember, we talked about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all that time right in there. It's one of those things that in the very early days, God said, this is going to set you apart. It's pretty dramatic, but it's going to set you apart from everyone else. Right? Because no one else is going to practice this. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Patriarchs like Isaiah, who wrote down the prophecy that we just read. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Right now, this is. Romans is being written to the church in Rome, Christians, as well as those who still hold to Roman pantheistic religious beliefs and worship the multiple gods of Rome, to remind them, because there is this, this is why we have the book of Romans and we have the book of Hebrews in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. One is written to early Christians, the other one is written to Jews to convince them. The book of Hebrews was written to try to convince the Jews that Jesus is really the Messiah. Don't miss this. He really is the one. This one is also being written to remind both Jews and early Christians that the gospel was for everyone. Jesus came for both those who were already the children and nation of God. Don't discount them. Don't, don't check them off because they're having trouble believing but he also came for those who know nothing and have never known anything about Jehovah God. They have only known the gods of their own nations. But he, Jesus, is still for them. He is for everyone. And the purpose is so that all of them may glorify God, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, and these are passages taken from multiple different places in the Old Testament. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles trust. So the writer of Romans here makes no, no bones about it that Jesus is the one that Isaiah is referring to. And that he is the one who comes to give hope, not to just one group of people, not to those who believe in some magic of truth, but to everyone who will believe in the name of Jesus Christ and his purpose, receive his salvation, receive his forgiveness, and then pattern their lives in a way that follows after him to become a true follower, a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that Jesus came to save. And then he gives this final encouragement in verse 13. May the hope of God, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There are three of the Advent truths right there in that verse. Joy, peace, Fourth one is contained within the entire text, and it's this: Why would God do this? Why would God come to us? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. Why would He do that? John three sixteen says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son." Whosoever, Jew, Gentile, checked out, checked in, messed up, got it all together, whosoever would believe in him would never perish, but have eternal life. Peace, hope, joy. Rejoice in it, my friends, because it is the gift God.
Israel? Look at your age again. Please pretend to come and join me when I sing one last song together. Which bookends the other half of the story of Jesus.